Hello, friends and foes alike, to another week, another new episode of People Are Wild, the podcast that dares to declare that Miracle Whip is disgusting and a garbage condiment. Joining you for another week is me, Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse. Now, some observations, follow-up, and or announcements. The internets have been lit up as of late about something I feel very passionate about. No, it's not Tide Pod challenges or even snorting condoms, I guess. That's a new thing that dumbass teenagers are doing. No, this is reminiscent of the dress in terms of dividing our country. By the way, it was totally white and gold. Never has there been more division about something since the topic of pineapple on pizza came to be. And I am firmly team pineapple and will not be moved. If you grill the pineapple and you put some shaved ham on there all on a cauliflower crust, it's just delicious and you're welcome in advance. But lately there's been debate about pickles and peanut butter sandwiches. Oh yes, there's been a debate. Here's my take on this. They're delicious. Now, prior to recording every episode of this little podcast that could, I actually eat a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. And it started off completely by accident. And now I guess it's more like ritualistic, kind of like baseball players have their superstitions and a lot of athletes do, I guess. Somehow that became my ritual before recording. So I guess actually it didn't come to be just because of a podcast that I started to eat these sandwiches. It was more based in college. We used to make these during our late night study sessions during midterms and finals and it was delicious and somehow I think it made my brain more able to retain information. There's probably nothing to that but in my head I like to think that works. I enjoy a good peanut butter and pickle sandwich and I have some instructions on to how to make the perfect peanut butter and pickle sandwich. So you need to invest in a bread that will not give up on you and totally let you go like Rose Let Go of Jack. They could have shared the damn door. Even Kate Winslet knows that. So get you a strong bread that can withstand moisture. Your Ezekiel bread might fail you in that regard maybe. Then you have to go for smooth, creamy peanut butter, and it has to be peanut butter. You want to come in to my house with almond butter on a pickle sandwich, GTFO, right now. Creamy peanut butter, except no substitutes. Now for your pickles, they have to be dill. They can be cut however you'd like, but they have to be dill, and they have to somehow be cut, sliced, or speared. You're a freak of nature if you just put a deli store dill pickle on your sandwich. You belong in Ripley's because I refuse to believe it or not. Hey, you remember that show? Dean Cain hosted it, Ripley's Believe It or Not. Oh, Dean Cain, you are a gem. I know that show was real, right? It wasn't a fever dream. No, I know it was real. Wait, was it? Hmm. No, it was. Anyways, point is, you have to have dill pickles, sturdy sandwich bread, and creamy smooth peanut butter. And you assemble it like a sandwich is supposed to be put together. It's not really rocket surgery. And then you enjoy the first bite and it'll blow your mind. Is Aladdin outside your window right now on a magic carpet? Because this is a whole new world. So please go make one immediately, eat one while enjoying this episode, and then report back to me with your thoughts. I await with dill pickle heavy breath. Now let's get this show on the road, if you will. I have lit my Dolly Parton prayer candle. May she strengthen me and not Jolene. I've been listening to Mariah Carey and Boys to Men powerful duet One Sweet Day on a loop repeat for about an hour. So I'm ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. In the early 1920s, the hot new gadget was a wristwatch with a glow-in-the-dark dial made possible by the magic of radium. 
bragged one advertisement, and it did seem magical. Radium was the latest miracle substance, an element that glowed and fizzed, which salesmen promised could extend people's lives, pump up their sex drive, and make women more beautiful. Doctors used it to treat everything from colds to cancer. Sounds a lot like people who swear that using placenta is their miracle drug. No, seriously, if you go on Pinterest, you can find recipes for placenta lasagna. Just, it's... It's a whole new world. Back on track, at the turn of the 20th century, scientific advancements occurred at a record pace. From Maxwell's theory of electromagnetic waves to Einstein's theories of relativity, long-standing mysteries of the universe were revealed. Medical discoveries also progressed feverishly. Countless lives were saved because of the practice of using antiseptics during surgery. The theory of germs gave us greater understanding into the transmission of disease. Vaccines for cholera, anthrax, rabies, tetanus, diphtheria, typhoid, pertussis, tuberculosis, the plague, and many others were developed. And apparently, thanks to pseudoscience and Jenny McCarthy, we are now living in a world where anti-vaxxers are a thing. Oh, I'm digressing and raising my blood pressure into a real danger zone. Reel me back in, Kenny Loggins. Okay. In 1901, the ABO system of blood typing was successfully used for safer blood transfusions. Felix Hoffman developed aspirin from willow tree bark, and the discovery of x-rays revolutionized diagnostic medicine. And the theory of radioactivity was proposed by Marie and Pierre Curie. An optimistic future lay ahead. But instead of cautiously navigating through this new field of radioactivity, arrogance and greed blazed the trail. And such is the story of the radium girls. Now, let's kind of back things up a bit and maybe go into what radium is. So stick with me on this part. Radium has several isotopes. No, not like the Springfield isotopes, or maybe, I don't know, four of which exist in nature. Now, RA-226 is the most common isotope found in nature, and it's derived from decaying uranium. It has a half-life of about 1600 years and is mainly an alpha emitter. However, as it decays, it also emits gamma radiation. RA-228 is another common isotope, but it emits beta particles and has a half-life of 6.7 years. Alpha particles can't penetrate the skin, whereas beta particles can. However, they can't pass through one's body. Gamma particles are the most dangerous because they can pass right through a person, irradiating all the tissue. So maybe think like Lou Ferrigno's The Incredible Hulk, all about those gamma rays. Man, those closing credits were always so somber. Also, how does the Hulk have shorts that cover him in either his Bruce Banner or Hulk form? Does he have Spanx? Does the Hulk wear Spanx? I need to know. Back on topic, both RA-226 and RA-228 become extremely toxic once ingested. But since RA-228 is more energetic, it is two and a half times more effective in producing bone sarcomas. It can cause bone cancer, and that's actually quite rare. Another aspect of RA-228 is that as it degrades inside one's body, its daughter product, radon-220, is not as easily expelled as the daughter product of RA-226. So radium is what is called a bone seeker. And I know some men on Tinder who also hold the same moniker. Anyways, once radium enters the body and as it spreads, it gets readily deposited within bones and along their surfaces. So as new bone growth occurs, radium is getting deposited deep into the bone and essentially stays there forever. So it's this very aspect that can make radium so dangerous 
particularly with prolonged exposure. Once it is in the bone, its ionizing radiation can wreak havoc on surrounding tissue, which includes other bones as well. Radium's ionizing radiation acts essentially like a shotgun, randomly bombarding surrounding tissue with charged particles with the potential to destroy DNA and cause mutations, but not the kind of mutations that might turn you into Wolverine or Deadpool. So to channel my inner Huey Lewis in the news, we are going to continue to go back in time. In 1898, Marie and Pierre Curie discovered radium. In nature, it is a silvery white element that in sufficient quantities actually glows blue. It was radium that showed the most promise to Marie Curie, who referred to it as, quote, my beautiful radium, my precious. Unlike some of the other elements, which burn out quickly, radium's glow seemed eternal. So shortly after its discovery, the radium craze began. The medical community was fascinated with radium and all of its daughter products the radon and some lead and bismuth. Quickly, internal and external radium therapeutics emerged treating such ailments as arthritis, hypertension, pain, and schizophrenia. And there was even a tonic marketed as a cure for stomach cancer. In the 1920s, there was an energy drink that was actually introduced that had radium in it that was guaranteed to make the drinker, quote, sparkle with energy. Other radium-laced creams, candies, rejuvenating powders, and lotions were readily available over the counter. It was also discovered that many of the therapeutic hot springs in Europe emitted radon gas. But back in the U.S. in the 1920s, a young working-class woman could land a job working with this miracle substance. Radium wristwatches were manufactured right here in America, and the U.S. Radium Corporation was hiring dial people to paint the tiny numbers onto watch faces for about five cents a watch, 12 numbers per watch, upwards of 200 to 300 watches per day. For that time, it was a good salary, and dial painters could earn more than almost any other profession available at the time to young women. And with every digit that they painted, the girls swallowed a little bit of radium, and they became known as the Radium Girls. So to get the numbers small enough for these wristwatches, new hires were taught to do something called lip pointing. After painting each number, they were to put the tip of the paintbrush between their lips to sharpen it. During the painting process, brushes would become dull and lose the fine tips needed for such delicate work. To reshape their brushes, dial painters were trained in the process of tipping or lip pointing. They would use their lips to reshape the brush and keep it clean. It was something that had to be done continuously, and as a result, dial painters ingested roughly 76 microcuries of radium annually. Side note, microcuries is definitely named after the curies, and that would be so amazing to have some sort of unit of measurement named after yourself. I would give my show two out of five millikims. No, millikims? I don't think that works. All right, I'll work on that later. The management at the U.S. Radium Corporation assured the girls that radium was not harmful and that the only side effect was rosy cheeks. Under this false belief that their paint was harmless, many of the girls would paint their fingernails and teeth to surprise their boyfriends at night. They would be able to glow in the dark, which honestly, I could totally get on board if I was in my teenage years at that time. Drugs and alcohol? Nah, not me. But being able to glow in the dark, that is basically one of my dreams in life. Now, another dangerous aspect of handling radium was the fact that as it decayed, radon gas was released. 
So lacking sufficient safety protocols, these girls would also inhale radon, adding to their total body burden. To put this into perspective, most people are exposed to an annual dose of background radiation in the range of roughly 0.2 to 0.3 REM, and that's the measure that they use. So standing next to Chernobyl during the meltdown for an hour would have exposed a person to about 30 REM of radiation. And using today's standards, 200 of that is believed to cause severe radiation sickness and death. And anything in the range of 300 to 400 is considered lethal. So some of the dial painters may have actually been exposed to levels that exceeded 200. And they were told at the time that this was harmless. In the early 1920s, the US Radium Corporation conducted internal investigations into radiation exposure in humans. In 1924, they hired Dr. Cecil Drinker, who was a Harvard physiology professor who looked into the working conditions at the plant. After a thorough review, Drinker concluded that there was an extensive contamination at the plants in Orange, New Jersey. Nearly every worker had high levels of blood contamination. Every dial painter was covered from head to toe in radioactive dust. In order to improve working conditions, Drinker made some recommendations, one of which was immediately ending tipping or the lip pointing. However, the company ignored his suggestions and barred him from publishing. Then they went a step further. When they turned his report over to the New Jersey Department of Labor, it portrayed the plant in a much different light. Every mention of unsafe working conditions was replaced with praise. And now the report stated, quote, every girl is in perfect condition. What was even more troubling was the fact that the U.S. Radium Corporation's own scientists knew radium was far more dangerous than uranium and took precautions to protect themselves, but not the girls. Whenever these scientists handled samples, they would use tongs and worked behind leaded shields. Literature about radium hazards existed as far back as 1906, and publications with references titled Radium Dangers, Injurious Effects, were disseminated to hospitals and doctors alike. And later, some of that literature even came from the U.S. Radium Corporation. Yet year after year, scores of young women were needlessly exposed to extraordinarily high levels of radiation. That was until Grace Fryer, a young bank teller and former dial painter, began losing her teeth. In 1922, Grace Fryer began having a slew of medical issues. For no apparent reason, her teeth became loose and started falling out. Grace became concerned after her jaw swelled and became inflamed. She went to a doctor who took an image of her jaw using a pretty primitive x-ray camera. The results were astonishing. Her jaw was in a state of serious decay. It resembled a honeycomb with small holes perforating her bone. Other doctors attempted to determine how a previously healthy young woman could rapidly and inexplicably develop such serious health issues. To make matters worse, more young women from Grace's hometown started appearing with similar medical problems. When dentists attempted removing their teeth, their sockets wouldn't heal. Infection quickly set in causing the surrounding tissue to become necrotic. Surgical recession was necessary as their jaws literally rotted away. Other symptoms included severe anemia, arthritis-like pain in their joints, and spontaneous long bone fractures. It baffled doctors. It was truly a medical mystery with no apparent cause. However, around 1925, one dentist theorized what these women had in common. They had all worked for the US Radium Corporation at some point. 
After learning that her condition may have something to do with her former occupation, Grace began investigating. Between 1922 and 1924, there were four radium workers who died under suspicious circumstances. Their deaths were attributed to syphilis, mouth ulcers, and phosphorus poisoning with the characteristic fossy jaw which is not a new dance craze to complement the stanky leg. Fossy jaw was a common symptom of matchstick workers during the turn of the century. Essentially, in the production of yellow-white phosphorus-based matchsticks, workers were exposed to phosphorus vapors that destroyed their jawbones. However, this condition presented quite differently when compared with the tumors and jaw problems from which the dial workers suffered. Basically, in cases of fossy jaw, phosphorus exposure poisons the osteoclast in the jaw, which prevents new bone growth. The bone and gums abscess, and they'll glow a greenish white in the dark and virtually fall apart. Whereas in cases of radium poisoning, victims had systemic problems, and some women presented with tumors the size of grapefruits in their jaw. Fossy jaw was a well-known condition and couldn't be confused with the tumors in radium poisoning. Again, this was just another part of the misinformation campaign and cover-up perpetuated by the U.S. Radium Corporation. The practices of the U.S. Radium Corporation were eventually exposed by the National Consumers League and a journalist named Walter Lippmann. The National Consumers League contacted Alice Hamilton, who contacted Catherine Drinker, Dr. Cecil Drinker's wife, and collaborator on the study for the U.S. Radium Corporation. Ms. Hamilton informed her about the results of their study that was presented to the New Jersey Department of Labor, after which Dr. Drinker published his original results. And what followed was a media and litigation nightmare for the U.S. Radium Corporation. Eventually, they settled out of court and paid each of the five women, whom the media dubbed the living dead, $10,000 and an additional $600 a year for medical expenses until their deaths. The five radium girls died over the next few months. Following the civil action and seemingly unaffected by the pain and suffering of these five women, Clarence Lee, the president of the U.S. Radium Corporation, wrote, quote, We unfortunately gave work to a great many people who were physically unfit to procure employment in other lines of industry, cripples and persons similarly incapacitated were engaged. What was considered an act of kindness on our part has been turned against us. Dozens of women died. Many of them ended up using the money to pay for their own funerals. In all, by 1927, more than 50 women had died as a direct result of radium paint poisoning. So, Clarence Lee, Kindly, STFU, and GTFO. Now, by the time World War II came around, the federal government had set basic safety limits for handling radiation. Now, a great quote from some of the research I did was the following. We really don't want our factory workers to be the guinea pigs for discovery. Oops is never good occupational health policy. The fallout from the radium girls changed labor laws forever as well as the dial painting industry. It also helped science gain a deeper understanding into radiation and its effects on humans. Millions of people were exposed to varying levels of radiation during the radium craze, but knowing who they were and how much they had been exposed to was difficult to determine. Scientists were able to follow dial painters throughout their lives, collecting invaluable data 
A couple of interesting conclusions therefore were made. Once exposed to high levels of radiation, if a person can escape any radium-inducing malignancies, his or her life expectancy is normal. In addition, roughly 80% of ingested radium is excreted in the feces or the urine, while the remaining 20% builds up and degrades. However, these aren't absolute numbers. Even with radium that builds up in one system, it's kind of a crapshoot whether or not something bad would happen down the line. For instance, in 1924, a woman named May Keene was hired at a factory in Connecticut. Her first day, she remembers, she didn't like the taste of the radium paint. It was gritty. She said, I wouldn't put the brush in my mouth. After just a few days at the factory, the boss asked her if she'd like to quit since she clearly didn't like the work, and she gratefully agreed. But Keen was among the hundreds who survived. Over the years, she had some health problems like bad teeth, migraines, and two bouts with cancer, but she died at 107 years old, and she was one of the last radium girls. So there is a whole lot of literature that you can read to help supplement the brief journey that I just kind of put out there with the radium girls. And I will definitely be putting links to all the research that I essentially used verbatim for the story of today's episode in the show notes. That'll definitely, all those links will be there. I highly encourage that you read them. But I also left out some things on purpose because I do truly hope that you take the time to read about these incredible women. And if I can make a suggestion for books after you've immersed yourself in the articles that I'll list, let me steer you in a really good direction. It's a book that came out last year in 2017. It's called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, and it is written by Kate Moore. And thanks to the power of love, or maybe more specifically the power of Twitter, I was able to have a conversation with the author, Kate Moore, not too long ago about her book and her research. And I hope that you guys enjoy it and you kind of get a little bit more insight about what she found along with her research. With me today is Kate Moore. She is a best-selling author, author of the book, The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Please go buy it immediately because it was hands down one of the best books I read last year. So to have you on with me doing this is pretty surreal. I'm kind of just like a little bit in awe right now. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to chat with me about about the Radium Girls. Uh, It is my privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for wanting to talk to me about these incredible women. Yeah, so let's kind of, because I know that, you know, even though it takes place in America, a lot of Americans Mm. didn't know this story. So maybe Mm. it's better to get a sense of what we're talking about by somewhat going back to to the beginning about the need for radium as an industry in World War One, which is basically where the story starts, essentially, right? Absolutely, yeah. So the, the, you know, chapter one opens in 1917, actually just on the cusp of the First World War. And it starts with a young woman, a young 14-year-old woman called Catherine Sharp who's going to work on her first day as a dial painter at a radium dial painting studio in New Jersey. And what dial painters did was to paint 
all sorts of things. It was watches and clocks and also aeronautical dials for the dashboards of ships and planes and automobiles. And they were employed to paint all those dials with luminous radium paint. So radioactive paint that glowed in the dark. And you're quite right, because we're on the cusp of the First World War, you can imagine that as soon as America joined the First World War, you know, the war machine wanted to take advantage of this cutting edge technology, really, you know, this glow in the dark paint that could mean that, you know, soldiers who were, you know, having to go over the top in the trenches could see their, you know, newfangled wristwatches, you know, rather than pocket watches. And also for all those ships and planes that are now fighting in France and in the war, um, you know, they all needed luminous dials as well. And so the radium girls, the dial painters of, of whom Catherine Sharp was one, they were employed to paint all those things. And there was a real sort of boom in the industry. And so you ended up with the women promoting this job, which was a very lucrative and glamorous job, very artistic work. They promoted the job to their sisters and their cousins and their friends. It was known as the elite job for poor working girls at that time. And, of course, the key thing to say is that the technique that they were taught is that because they were doing very detailed handiwork, because the numbers on these dials were so small in some cases, they were taught to lip point, which means they were taught by their employers to put their brushes between their lips to sort of suck on the brush and make a fine point with the bristles for that very detailed handiwork. And of course, in so doing, they were swallowing the radioactive paint. And they were told that this was safe, that this was the best way to do this. Absolutely. But of course, these are girls in their their teenage years. And I think, you know, for, for people listening, you think back to some of the stuff you did in your teenage years, your first jobs, how exciting it was, how mm-hmm. in this case, they got to hang out with their friends and their family. And it was somewhat of, you know, just kind of like a friendly sort of thing. It was just a fun atmosphere to work in. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the other thing to to remember, which you kind of hinted at there, is, you know, these women thought they were lucky, not just because of the sort of camaraderie and because it was a fun place to work on an artistic job. They actually thought they were lucky to work with this radioactive substance because we didn't know about the danger as well. Um, there, there, there was evidence about some of the dangers of radioactivity, but the sort of the received wisdom of the age that was that small amounts of radioactivity and a radioactive substance were in fact safe. So you could go into your local drugstore and buy radioactive dressings and pills to treat things like hay fever and high blood pressure. And you could buy radioactive cosmetics, you know, face creams and eyeshadows to make your skin luminous. And so these women thought they were really lucky to work with this sort of wonder element as well. You know, they were they did ask. They kind of said, you know, is it safe to put the brushes in our mouths? Um, But the companies who were funding all these lucrative industries um, said, yes, it was safe. You know, in small amounts, radium was safe. That's what they thought. Right. It was kind of touted for some people as the elixir of life, the the fountain of youth, I think, in, in some cases, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like all this... Yeah, this yeah, people thought it would kind of stave off... The wonder drug. ...middle age. Sorry, we're, we're still obsessed with it today, you know, that sort of pursuit of youth, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, you open any magazine and there'll be some new superfood or something that you know, we're all well, supposed to be eating. And, and radium was that in the 1910s and 20s. It's like these uh, thousands and thousand dollars, uh, you know, facial sort of things that you see all the celebrities having that that they swear by mm-hmm. it and everything it's always one thing to the next so at that time it was radium yeah. and 
And nowadays, it's probably something else that, you know, 10, 20 years from now will be like, people did that? Oh, my gosh. Looking back on it, right? (laughs) Completely. So they're safe, right? And it doesn't take too long before they start getting sick. Well, it it takes a couple of years for radium poisoning to show itself. So by the time the girls start getting sick, you know, the First World War is over. And many of them are actually not dial painters anymore. You know, they... They were patriotic young women, so some of them signed up for the war effort and then they stopped working as dial painters. But then, yeah, they start getting sick and and that sort of delay, that sort of insidious nature of radium poisoning that you've swallowed this substance, but it doesn't immediately start to show itself. It takes years before, you know, you start to get an aching tooth or a sore leg or a a kind of aching back. That was part of the problem as, as the girls are trying to figure out, well, what's happening to me? You know, I'm... I'm in my early 20s now. I'm, you know, I've been working with radium, this elixir of youth. Why do I feel so old and so sick and so poorly? Why am I limping? Why is my mouth hurting? And they were completely in the dark about it. And it was a kind of medical mystery. You know, what was what was wrong? And the girls had to figure that out. Right. And by the way, every time now that I ever have like a jaw or tooth pain or any ache, my mind automatically is like, oh my gosh, it's radium. But I don't, I don't have any radium yeah. in my life. So I can't even I, imagine. I hope not. <laughs> not for your sake. I, 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 I can't imagine like even probably researching it. You're probably like, um, well, hang on a second. Was that an ache because of this? No, I'm just kidding. Maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you, well, you, you do, you do start to... I mean, because obviously, as you're reading, and as I was writing the book, you really empathise with the women. That's what I wanted readers to do. And so you do start thinking, well, how would that feel? You know, and as I was writing, I, I literally used to sort of, you know, run my tongue around my teeth and the inside of my mouth as I was writing. How could you You know, not? thinking, how would that feel if that tooth wasn't there? You know, all of that kind of thing. You mentioned how it takes, it took years for things to start to, to show up for these, for the girls. Mm-hmm. And... And at least in modern days, it takes years for a lot of different conditions to show up. So it goes into the, how did they get their believability? You know, how did they get those people that, that did believe in them? Um, mm. And I know a lot of them had well, to I mean, rely on their families. Yeah, a, a lot of them did. And, you know, I think for me, one of the really sort of shocking elements of, of the story, although living in the patriarchy as we do, you know, it perhaps I shouldn't be surprised, but there was a real sense as these women are getting sick that firstly, you know, well, can they, you know, can we really trust them that it, it they're kind of, they, you know, the women start to think, well, it must be our jobs. That's the only thing that is connecting us, you know, that we used to be dial painters or that we worked with radium. And of course the companies want to hush that up as much as they can, because if it's proved that it's radium that's hurt the women, then they can kiss goodbye to all those lucrative industries and they can kiss goodbye to all those profits they're making. So, you know, one of the really shocking things about this history is the way the companies respond. So they try to discredit the women because they're women sometimes. You know, they kind of say it's female hysteria. They say, you know, the women were sick to begin with and they're just, you know, they're they're fraudulent, they're liars, they're cheats, they're just trying to get money out of the company, uh, you know, trying to palm off something on the firm. Uh, You know, they kind of cast slurs on the women's moral character, which was telling for me. And, you know, you kind of asked about, you know, how, how do they, you know, how do they get people to pay attention? And for me, the key moment when someone finally starts paying attention, even though women have been dying, is when the first male employee of the radium firm dies. That is when an expert takes t- takes note for the first time and starts, 
you know, they start doing autopsies at last, but it takes a man to die. You know, who cares about those other young women um, who've already passed away from this horrible, horrible radium poisoning? It's only when a man dies that finally, you know, people start to take note and devise, you know, these really innovative tests to figure out what is going on inside these women. When you're reading the book, you're just, you get so frustrated for these women and their journey towards having somebody take them seriously. And I couldn't mm-hmm. help but think, working in healthcare, how this might have happened decades ago, but it still happens to this day in terms of people having that frustration with somebody taking their symptoms seriously. So for yeah. for the radium girls, it's it's kind of like, like I said, I mean, it's not just this is a really good book. This is a book that, that needs to be read because it's sort of like, have we learned from history? Have we, yeah. have we really done a lot in terms of believing people about things that take time to show up? So with them, with the Radium yeah. Girls, it started in World War One, but it we still have their impact today. But at the time as well, you know, you talk about their Manhattan Project, their contribution to that as well being paramount. Absolutely. Well, we were kind of saying earlier about how people thought, you know, radium was safe in small amounts at this time. Well, it's only thanks to the radium girls that we know that isn't the case. And, and that's why they're so important. So, you know, people working on the Manhattan Project, they're handling only small amounts, but they're handling small amounts of radioactive material. But thanks to the radium girls, who obviously had prefaced the Second World War and the Manhattan Project, and through the radium girls' courage in, you know, fighting to bring this to public attention that radium was dangerous, and in their groundbreaking legal fights that they embark on to bring about, you know, health and safety in the workplace and legislation, which means that employers have to protect their workers. You know, because of all that, those workers on the Manhattan Project work largely in safety because the management insisted on safety procedures they insisted on testing the materials that they were using on the manhattan project and they were found to be biomedically very similar to radium and so obviously had that been left unchecked they probably would have suffered identical symptoms to what the radium girls endured but because of the girls bravery and their sacrifice you know unwitting sacrifice but we learned from the tragedy that came about with these young women getting sick dying becoming crippled we learned from that and so we've used that to protect other people going into the ages so it is a legacy you know this the radium girls have a legacy that lasts to the day you know in science in the knowledge we gain from their bodies in law and in you know workplace and, and workers rights and so on but there's also a legacy i think as a kind of warning from history because as you say you read the book and you think well it's a hundred years old but actually this kind of feels familiar and people have kind of said that the journey that the girls have to go on, you know, you know, identifying a problem, trying to fight against authority to bring it to light. It's kind of like a classic case that we see in other industries for, like tobacco, for example, you know, learning that tobacco is harmful because the same thing happens. You know, the companies deny that they're at fault uh, when evidence finally comes to light that actually it's true. They cover it up. They lie. They manipulate. They misdirect. And it takes perseverance and tenacity and banding together and, you know, a determination to see justice done, even if it takes years, to ensure that, you know, the truth will out. And that is the story of the Radium Girls, but it's also the story of so many things in history. So I think to read it, you kind of can't help but appreciate those parallels and appreciate 
how important it is for all of us, whether we're from the First World War or whether it's from now and we're people from now, how important it is to sort of fight for what you believe in. Because if you don't do that, then injustices, you know, lie on the record and, and they're not addressed. It takes courage to to stand up against those things. You talk about how the girls banded together and, and a lot of them, when you come towards, you're approaching the end of this, of this book, you realize how much their battle is for the people that they've lost along the way. That, you know, mm-hmm. at, at their resolution, at their end of, of what happened and what started, you know, the laws and, and everything as a result of, of what's been done without giving too much away. Mm-hmm. You know, the lives of the surviving Radium Girls at that time were a testament to those before them. And that that kind of got me, too, is that mm-hmm. are we going to have that down the road with people fighting for years and years to get them people, these corporations and people to believe them that something's wrong about something that hurt their families. And like you said, tobacco is one of the more recent examples. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, we do a lot of advertising for medicines and drugs on TV, but we also do a lot of advertising mm-hmm. for lawsuits related to the medicines and drugs. And I just couldn't help but think that, like you said, sure, this this happened you know, hundred some odd years ago, but it's still we're still seeing the impact today of of what the what the radium girls have done, and mm. and their journey as well. So it's just you know it's a fantastic read. I keep telling people that I just realize that, but it's an important read, and it's just so well detailed throughout their whole journey that you can't help but feel frustrated and so I mean I have to ask you did you ever like have to fight that urge to just single-handedly like dismantle capitalism and revenge <laughs> uh yes I, I often felt that I mean it, it was kind of weird when I was writing and researching the book because obviously I was you know going through files and and finding company memos that you know, realized they totally knew what they were doing. They knew radium was dangerous. They knew they were at fault. And yet they still did nothing to help these girls. And that is just such a shocking thing to realize. And so I would kind of sit at my computer, you know, enraged, muttering to myself. And, you know, it is very hard not to not to get enraged when you read the story, you know, and because it isn't a story, it's history, it's fact. People behaved in this way people died because of this behavior and while yes it was it was very tempting to go out and try and deconstruct capitalism in the end I think I channeled that emotion and that intensity of feeling kind of into the writing and I hope what it does is that it reminds people that you know people are important it isn't just about profit and I hope it reminds people that the regulations and things that we have today are built on the bodies and the sacrifice of those who have come before. You know, we kind of think of health and safety today as almost a bit of a joke. You know, it's red tape, it's annoying, it's, you know, it's let's have a laugh about all the forms we have to fill in and so on. But we have those forms because people died. And, you know, I think to read the book, you kind of get a sense of that. So I think, I hope the girls kind of inspire other people to, to keep on fighting. And I and as I say, I just wanted this book to to sort of be a testament to their memory because I felt the women had largely been forgotten and so I hope when people read the book it, I, I'm not really preaching a, a, a kind of anti-capitalist message really what it is is a tribute to these to these women and that for me is the most important thing the sort of the humanity of them and if other people take other messages from it you know that that's kind of for them and 
I'm sure some people will take away other messages and they will be enraged just like I was. But ultimately, I just want people to connect with these young women and to walk in step with them on this remarkable and horrifying and courageous journey that they went on. So what would be the thing that, you know, we can learn really from the Radium Girls, from their journey regarding our current sort of state of affairs with medications mm. and, and some of the other things with corporations and how they not only treat workers, but maybe even just a little bit with, with health in terms of their, their employees. Yeah, I mean, I think a kind of informed wariness is probably the kind of advice because, you know, radium, as I say, you know, as we discussed at the, the beginning um, of this interview, you know, at the time it was seen as this elixir of youth. The medical research that was conducted into radium, that was allegedly showing, you know, nothing but positive effects and that was written about by the companies in these you know quasi medical journals that were then dispatched free to doctors across the country so that doctors would prescribe radium because they read about this research and then they sell it you know and and prescribe it to their patients but it, as i say it was the companies conducting that research they were biased they were making money out of radium and they were looking for positive results and discounted anything to the contrary so I think you've got to have a wariness about what you're being told, who is telling you it, why why are they saying that? Obviously, I wouldn't advise people to completely, you know, discount all medicine. I'm not saying all medicine is bad, just as I'm not saying all capitalism is bad, you know. No, no, no. It's just about having, you know, be, being informed, I think, and being aware, too, that companies can't always be trusted. You know, we see that again, time and again, you know, look at the the Volkswagen scandal, the emission scandal that happened recently, you know, they deliberately manipulated those test results. You know, they could not be trusted. And I think we see that time and again. Um, so that's something to be aware of. You know, companies don't always have people's best interests at heart. But I hope the, the kind of main lesson that we can learn from the Radium Girls is about their kind of lesson of, of perseverance and of solidarity with each other. Because not all the radium girls made it and as you say they kind of fought on for those that they had lost and who had already lost their fight against the radium inside them and had lost their fight against the companies and yet their friends kept on fighting for them you know the solidarity in that the persistence the tenacity that is the lesson that i hope people really take away and that they see these women as an inspiration of what you can achieve, you know, no matter how small you feel, no matter how powerless, how voiceless, if you keep on talking and you band together and you keep on fighting, you can change the world because that's what they did. Even though at times in their journey, it felt impossible. They did change the world. And I think it's so important just to stress again that, you know, sometimes you, you have to keep advocating and you have to keep putting pressure on people and, and mm -hmm. telling people no something is wrong no something is yeah. wrong and it might take years but you know and, and especially when you read this book but you realize that persistence does pay off completely and, and I mean you kind of said there you know about keeping telling people that something is is wrong you know initially these girls when they were going into their doctors you know complaining of these aches and pains which was the radium in their skeletons essentially destroying their bodies from the inside out the doctors diagnosed arthritis and sent them home with aspirin you know that and that is just inconceivable when you realize the radium was literally destroying their skeletons their bones but the women kept on going going back they kept on speaking out and it, as you say if any of your listeners are in that position and it, you, you know we all know our own bodies and if you know that something's wrong 
you need to, to bring it to attention and you know sometimes you're the only person who can do that who can keep speaking up about it absolutely i always tell people in the er you know you we only see you for a few hours mm. something's wrong keep a journal do do whatever you have to do but yeah but it's so important to have the support behind you and and with the radium girls they had each other they had their families and in the book it it highlights this incredible like you said this incredible camaraderie that they had that lasted mm. from when you know when they first got their job all the way through their fight and how they carried those yeah. those who passed away along the way they carried them all the way through with them as well and i think that that's incredible too to read about at just how passionate yeah. they were and how they were a group even after after a few of them had passed away they were still a group and mm. and that's really beautiful absolutely i mean it really is a, a story of female friendship as well this they couldn't have done it without each other they needed all of them to fight against this and that's what they did so to wrap it up a little bit what would be the takeaway for for anybody out there that's like oh man this book this book sounds pretty interesting what would be the takeaway you want people to have not just from the book but maybe just in general with their story with the radium girl story my driving motivation was was about the women themselves you know this this is a story that is is so rich in history it's rich in science you know it is a story of you know workers rights and and fighting against injustice and, and you know all of, all of those kind of things it's a world war one story it's you know it's got a huge amount of different elements to it and so i'm sure different people listening will be interested for different reasons you know you've talked about your health background and this is a key sort of occupational health case and and, and so on and so forth but for me actually i i was personally when I was writing the book and when I, you know, chose to write it and, and you know, embarked on this kind of research, you know, digging into history and, and, and finding the women's story and the truth of what had happened to them, I wasn't actually concerned about any of those elements at all. All I was concerned about was the girls, was about Catherine Sharp, was about Grace Fire, Catherine Donahue and all the other women that I write about in the book. And so for me, the takeaway would be that these women are remembered you know, that people listening can think of, you know, Catherine Sharp, age 14, you know, this blonde woman, blonde young woman walking to work on her first day. And I want people to remember that young woman, the sacrifice she made. And I would like them to want to meet her in the pages of this book to see the journey that she went on. And I hope when people have read the book that they will take these courageous women to their hearts and empathize with their personal tragedies and be inspired by the courage and perseverance that they displayed in this incredible fight for justice and i think that's a great place to put it up thank you so much kate for being here with me today and, and talking about that and taking time out of your day i highly encourage anybody listening to please 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 read this book you will be enthralled i ended up listening to it on a long cross-country drive that I was doing and I think I had to pull off a few times to go pace about because I got a little bit frustrated but it's yeah it's delightful it's awesome it it's really good and I'm glad that uh, I was recommended it so I pass along the recommendation to everybody else so thank you again Kate for being here thank you so much thank you for championing this story with the passion that you have I really really appreciate you spreading the word about them thank you so many, many thanks goes out to Kate Moore for joining me to discuss her incredible book. I rave about it constantly. It's my number one suggested book to anybody, anywhere, because it's 
just really well written, but also it's a story that keeps you engaged and also will make you a little bit frustrated on these girls' behalf. And I think that's always good in a book when you just make a connection right off the bat and you're invested in in all these people. And this is what really happened. So it's just something that I can go on forever in terms of talking about how much I loved it, but I would just suggest you read it for yourself and you find out why I like it so much, I guess. Hashtag worth it. Now, I wish you all an amazing week ahead. Practice random acts of kindness, believe in the good, and it's like Mr. Rogers always said, it's not so much what we have in this life that matters. It's what we do with what we have. That's what really matters.